Hello and welcome to Curating a Conversation with Cedar Hill Cemetery, a podcast that asks critical questions about the structures and conditions that shape the lives of Black residents in Hartford, Connecticut, pre-20th century. My name is Maggie Powers, and I am a current junior at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, majoring in American Studies. This semester, in a course called Curating Conversations, taught by Professor Jordan Camp, we engaged with a variety of materials surrounding critical oral histories, theories, and practices. We were asked to apply our understandings of these theories and practices in a public-facing final project that entered into conversation with a significant research question. This project and podcast is meant to spark dialogue and develop research on a local site of historical production while being part of a broader conversation on slavery and black development. In the last year, my academic interests have naturally become more defined through my course selection. So under the advisement of Professor Camp, I was urged to ask myself a research question that I didn't know the answer to yet. I bounced back and forth from topics like archival silences, museums as sites of protests, and the influence of slavery here at Trinity College. I ultimately decided upon asking a question I had very little prior knowledge of pertaining to a local history rooted in understanding the conditions and structures black communities faced post-emancipation. Focusing my topic on a local site of historical production would allow me to hopefully visit and interact with a larger body of archives. Cedar Hill Cemetery, located off of Fairfield Avenue, piqued my interest as a possible space in which black history in Hartford could be further investigated. Taking inspiration from Uncovering Their History, African, African American, and Native American burials in Hartford's ancient burying ground, 1640 to 1850, which sought to, quote, uncover the lost history of Native, African, and African American burials in Hartford's ancient burying ground, end quote. I began to design a project that asked questions of preservation, specifically concerning Cedar Hill Cemetery's early politics and regulations. Utilizing a cemetery as a site of interpretation for social, political, and economic symptoms of slavery allowed me to interpret the past in ways I had not explored. I particularly wanted to think about how Connecticut and Hartford fit into the larger political and economic conversation about the institution of slavery, as northern states too often fall into the trope of not participating in enslaving human beings. Throughout my research process, the aim of my project had to shift. I originally intended to understand how the structures and conditions of the mid to late 19th century in Hartford and beyond shaped the lives of black people prior to being buried in Cedar Hill Cemetery. Yet, I soon found out that the first well-documented black person to be buried in Cedar Hill Cemetery did not happen until 1911. So, I needed to adjust accordingly. My project has now become about exploring and understanding how the lack of presence of black people buried in Cedar Hill Cemetery from its founding in 1864 until the turn of the 20th century helps us understand some of the conditions and structures that black Hartfordians had to contend with at the time. By examining the story of Henry Green as motivation, as well as the cornerstone for black burial within Cedar Hill Cemetery in 1911, I seek to understand and ask questions of accessibility. Through the utilization of cemetery databases, time period research, and engaging in conversation with Cedar Hill Cemetery Foundation, I was able to begin to piece together limitations inherently placed on black life and Hartford during my defined time period. Establishing Hartford in the global conversation of slavery, 
learning more about freed black communities in Hartford and Connecticut at the time, and hearing from Beverly Lucas, Foundation Director at Cedar Hill Cemetery, I began to understand through the event of death the conditions in which black residents in Hartford had to endure. This podcast will serve as a starting point for further questions to be asked about the quote, middle period, the understanding of black life after the Civil War, and will add to black historical development in Hartford, Connecticut. Reference to the institution of slavery in Connecticut can be seen as early as 1646 in the Connecticut Code of Laws, which was later published in 1650 and indicated slavery, or more commonly known as servitude in Connecticut, as a legitimate form of punishment for a criminal act. In New England, there existed three classes of enslaved people, Native Americans, the earliest class, African Americans, and white people. The Connecticut Code of Laws was branded as a race-specific penalty targeting Native Americans rather than what most people would assume as a law that solidified slavery within the state. This legislation indicated that one servitude may be traded for another, Native American for African American. It described Connecticut's conception of their own slavery system and enabled their motivations to purge their society of Native Americans via trading them for black servitude. It did not matter if these laws did or did not create slave trade within the state. As legal scholar Christopher Tomlins argues, quote, the simple presence of slaves turns into the presence of slavery, end quote. Connecticut became an ideal site for slavery within New England as it was a home to various seaports like New Haven and New London. Along with its access to the Atlantic Ocean, Connecticut boasted a collection of urban centers and vast rural farms primed for the institution of slavery. In 1690, further legislation was passed to continue the systemization of slavery in Connecticut. This law required all enslaved and freed people of color to carry passes with them at all times outside of their residences, allowing authorities to stop and question them. Connecticut would also continue their campaign against Native Americans in 1750 when it passed legislation that prohibited the import of Native American slaves into the Connecticut colony. Although no finite laws about slavery existed in the Connecticut colony or state, we can see evidence of legislation and treatment of enslaved people on behalf of the courts and their owners that suggest Connecticut was home to a society with enslaved people. Legislation that was passed never established specifics regarding the ownership of enslaved people, just regulations on both parties' conduct. One of the first laws passed that was actively against the institution was in 1769, prohibiting the import of all enslaved people. Because it was not fully seen through, it was passed yet again in 1774. A decade later, the Connecticut Emancipation Act was passed allowing any child born into servitude after March 1st in 1784 to be freed once they reached the age of 25. The age regulation was then revised in 1797 to the age of 21. It is important to point out that this act of emancipation only pertained to children born into slavery after the fact, not those already enslaved. These were acts of gradual emancipation as slavery would not be abolished in Connecticut until 1848. In 1790, Connecticut saw the formation of its anti-slavery society in New Haven. That same year, approximately 1,563 families in Connecticut owned slaves. The United States would not sign the Emancipation Proclamation until 1863, almost 15 years after Connecticut passed its own. 
Society in New England and beyond was based off of the belief that men were divided into different classes, and that slavery was recognized and sanctioned in the Bible. Connecticut has been long left out of this larger conversation about slavery. These complex and contested histories that do in fact exist in Connecticut are lost due to a multitude of factors, namely the limited available sources. New England's port was particularly a prime spot for slave ship entries, but in 1781, Benedict Arnold set fire to and destroyed most of the shipping records, leaving us today with a huge gap of missing and important numbers. The records Arnold destroyed, or the lack of reporting on behalf of the Connecticut colony to the Board of Trades, creates a historical documentation disparity on the extent to which Connecticut participated in trading slaves out of its ports. Our understanding of slavery in Connecticut is limited and largely unrecognized because of the sentiment that slavery was not nearly as prevalent in New England as it was down south. This narrative is extremely harmful and produces difficulty in dismantling systemic racism. Harvard University recently pledged $100 million to their new Legacy of Slavery Fund, which follows up the 130-page report on the institution's ties to slavery. This leading commitment has produced mixed reactions, as well as a collection of vague ways the fund plans on doling out the endowment. Harvard's decision to follow up its report with tangible goals of reparations is an overdue conversation for Harvard itself, as well as the United States as a whole. Hartford, Connecticut was home to a host of free black communities during the 19th century. New England in particular was attractive for the establishment of free communities because of its growing urban centers. Cities were home to economic opportunities and the chance for black individuals to gather in large numbers. The free black population grew gradually in Connecticut during the beginning of the 19th century, and cities like New Haven, Hartford, and Middletown where work was to be found even if the pay was poor. Free communities were born out of the demand to serve the needs of free black residents, rid of white control and force. Black residents were largely barred by local authorities to own property, which was an essential aspect of achieving a place within society at the time. Much rode on land ownership, such as the ability to vote and the right to residency. Even if free black individuals were able to purchase land, it was more times than not economically out of their grasp. The free black individuals who did achieve this were few, but rose within the ranks of society, becoming pillar black exceptions. The difficulty for free black people to achieve rights inherently afforded to white men was a condition that created contention and perpetuated oppression. A Hartford Current article published on October 24, 1915, titled The Color People Who Lived in Hartford, aimed to assuage white residents' opinions and hostilities towards black residents at the time. Largely, there was mounting white fear during the 19th century that black individuals were incapable of meeting society's standards for freedom and citizenship. Thus, there was a general unwillingness to advance their standing within society. Unfortunately, the majority of black individuals at the time remained poor, uneducated, and without property, which only fueled white residents' hesitation to admit them into society. Although the majority of free black people in Connecticut lived in urban spaces, there was a huge migration at the start of the 20th century of black southerners to Hartford. Poor and uneducated black Georgians were recruited to the Connecticut River Valley farms as laborers at the start of the migration. Their gradual presence in Hartford and the surrounding area created divides between the long-standing black population and the newcomers. 
Although free black people at the time did not have the same access to resources as white people, tensions grew between the two black populations because of the fear of association black Hartfordians had with the less educated Georgian migrants. This certainly produced a shift socially as well as economically when the Hartford labor scene became flooded. As a part of their influence, free black communities saw a sprouting up of churches in Hartford. Talcott Street Congregational Church was founded in 1823, as well as the American Methodist Episcopal Zion Church in 1836. Amongst free black communities in Hartford, there was the Front Street Black neighborhood, which was very socially viable, and the Park River Black neighborhood, which was the oldest. Before Cedar Hill Cemetery's founding in 1864, Hartfordians were limited to burying their loved ones in the ancient burying ground, the north burying ground, the old south burying ground, and Spring Grove. Cedar Hill Cemetery's founding landed amidst the American rural cemetery movement that spanned from 1831 with Mount Auburn Cemetery's conception in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to the beginning of the 20th century, in order to attest to the physical and social realities of the elite. 19th century urban cemeteries were becoming too crowded, and there was a desire amongst the more wealthy citizens of Hartford to find a desirable resting place for their loved ones, especially for families who had lost their husbands and sons in the Civil War. A group of prominent citizens banded together with the goal to find an attractive piece of land in which they could develop a haven that would become more than just a final resting place for their deceased. They settled on 270 acres of woodlands, fields, and ponds with an abundance of wildlife on the outskirts of Hartford. Hartford's park superintendent and landscape architect Jacob Weideman developed a park-like idyllic and secluded cemetery away from the stress of the city through the use of open space, man-made ponds, and gorgeous plant life. Although it was a final resting place for the dead, the founders and Weidenman kept in mind the needs and desires of the living to have a space in which they could stroll around and remember their loved ones free of chaos and overcrowdedness like other urban cemeteries. Suited to the tastes and liking of the living, and located on the edge of the city, Cedar Hill Cemetery automatically became geographically and economically available only to the elite and prominent members of society at the time. Its distance from the town center developed problems of accessibility for those who could not afford transportation to the city limits in order to enjoy a stroll in this urban oasis, never mind the actual cost of acquiring a lot of any size. Although there were no written rules or regulations ever that prohibited the ability to purchase a plot of cemetery land based on one's gender, race, social class, etc., economically it was not attainable except for those with considerable wealth. Rules and regulations were in place, however, in order to maintain serenity in this cultural institution. Cedar Hill Cemetery is now home to many notable Connecticut and American people like Katherine Hepburn, Samuel Colt, Gideon Wells, and many more. I would now like to introduce Beverly Lucas, who has served as the Cedar Hill Cemetery Foundation Director since October of 2011. In her capacity as a director, she has overseen the growth and development of fundraising, program development, and marketing for the foundation. She received her BA in American Studies from Mount Holyoke College and her MA in Early American Culture from the University of Delaware. Previously, she has worked at the Wethersfield Historical Society as a curator and at Connecticut Landmarks. 
I had the privilege to interview her for this project and get to know more about her role as director, the cemetery's early history, and to discuss the question of accessibility for black people to be buried at Cedar Hill Cemetery before the 20th century. Here's a bit from our interview. off with, could you share a little bit about your role as the director of the foundation at Cedar Hill Cemetery? Okay, um, well as director of uh, Cedar Hill Cemetery Foundation, I'm in charge of programming at the cemetery, mm -hmm. um, as well as uh, fundraising and development. So I raise funds for the um, restoration of some of the historic monuments, mm -hmm. to plant trees, to help um, develop uh, kind of a our, our tree population is dying, unfortunately. So we're removing some and adding trees. Um, and as I said, I do the tours and events. So develop programs and also implement them. In the next clip, we will hear from Beverly Lucas on the financial barriers, plot pricing, and the question of where were black people being buried at the time. And then um, in 1903, there was a history of Cedar Hill Cemetery that um, we do have a booklet um, that kind of has like our bylaws and things like that. Um, so I was going through that and the re only reference was, um, it says wants and circumstances of all classes have been considered different size lots, including single graves. So they were suggesting that anybody based on expense wise could purchase here. So there's definitely nothing that I could find that excludes anybody. Um, but I know some of your later questions you talked about, I think price is an issue um, of why certain people were buried and trying to do, which relates more to what you were, are interested in is uh, where were the black people buried in Hartford? And it gets really hard to do pre uh, 1900 or so. I mean, I know there's the civil war veterans in old North. Yes. But I don't know if, and because I haven't done the research, I don't know were any of their family members buried with them or is it just the veterans? And then I found Spring Grove, I think in 1905, opens up mm -hmm. uh, two sections for black burials. Um, but there's this whole gap. Mm -hmm. And I know the ancient burying ground, but this that's too early, yeah. they uncovered. Mm -hmm. Um, burials but I was like where's that middle piece oh that I think that's part of my like next question if I continue this project after this semester is looking at other cemeteries because this was I based my project off of Cedar Hill just because of how strong the early history is and how like mm -hmm. I, I it's accessible online um, right. but then there's other cemeteries that are not as accessible and I think this is a question I have to keep asking because we have such a Hartford has such a strong presence within the Black history of America. And so I really hopefully can continue this in some independent research. Um, right. Yeah. And one of the questions you had asked, I think, or at one point was, um, you know, barriers to being here. Like we don't, we didn't seem to have any written barriers for anybody to be here. And potentially, depending on which director you get, you shouldn't have any <laughs> biases. Um, but I think one of the things was the cost of Cedar Hill. Um, although 
and I could only find like comparisons to like the New York's Greenwood, which is a similar rural cemetery and one in Cincinnati, like our costs were at the same level. So we weren't like pricing people out of the market, but we were more expensive. And then definitely the, um, the early lots were big, bigger than, so if it was 25, cents a square foot or whatever it was called um but you had to buy 100 square feet you know that's uh, you know 25 cents sounds good now we will be able to hear from beverly lucas on the affordability and limited accessibility at cedar hill cemetery during its early history um now they that 1903 references singles mm -hmm. i think that i'm not sure when the singles actually came in i don't think they were here in 1866 and 68 and stuff so you're buying and i think that's why you see some like with that court case or the newspaper articles 1880 two families own the lot is they're splitting the costs and back then we were a little bit more freewheeling of letting them put two monuments on the lot whereas today if you have a one lot you only have one large monument you might have footstones and stuff so anyways i think cost was one of the thing and the other thing that with the cost was a lot of the wealthy families then moved their loved ones from either old north or spring grove because you don't want to be separated from yeah. either your children who died young or your first wife or what have you so that is another expense of having to be buried at Cedar Hill if you're bringing loved ones with you. So I think that um, took out the, you know, not just black, but immigrant and, uh, you know, anybody at a certain level. And I think that reference the 1903 that says, oh, we're affordable is, you know, is the singles aspect. The aim of my original research question was to understand the structures and conditions that would affect black individuals at the conception of Cedar Hill Cemetery up until the 20th century from either being buried or not being buried within the property. Throughout my research, I found no direct evidence that the cemetery, through their written rules and regulations, ever banned anyone from being buried based off of their gender or race. Two instances that are either largely unfounded or drawn to question the practices of these rules and regulations surfaced during my research. The first one being a claim in Edwin Valentine Mitchell's book, The Horse and Buggy Age of New England, stating that in relation to Henry Green's burial at Cedar Hill Cemetery, quote, the only colored person, Green, buried in the cemetery, with the exception of a family that slipped past authorities unnoticed, end of quote. Beverly Lucas, nor I, could find any evidence to support Mitchell's claim that a family, presumably a family of color, was able to slip past the cemetery's authorities. The second instance that lies outside the non-discriminatory rules and regulations Cedar Hill Cemetery supposedly upheld occurred in 1880 when Reverend Dr. Childs wanted to bury his domestic worker, Linnell Stevens, within the shared plot. Childs secured a brief go-ahead to bury Stevens within the plot but when it came time to pick up the permit, Mr. Ward W. Jacobs and other directors of the cemetery were made aware that Stevens was in fact black. Childs pointed out that once the cemetery was made aware of this factor, which he never purposely hid, their tune changed. Childs stated, quote, to the direct question, would the permit have been refused if the person had been white? The frank reply was, certainly not, end of quote. 
The directors claimed that it was necessary for Childs to obtain permission from all share plot owners in order to bury a non-family member within the space. Whether or not this excuse was racially employed in the instance of the Childs-Stephen burial request or during other moments of Cedar Hill Cemetery's history, it is in fact the case that there are certain protocols in place that require permissions to be sought for shared plots. These two instances still leave one of my questions unanswered. Who was the first black person to be buried at Cedar Hill Cemetery? Well, let me introduce you to Henry Green. Henry Green was born into slavery in Virginia during the 1830s. It is unclear whether he was freed or escaped in the 1860s, but nevertheless, Green met U.S. Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells, who would offer him a job and have him accompany his son, Thomas, into the Civil War. The Wells family would then eventually move to Connecticut, and Green would follow, becoming head servant and coachman to the family. Green would then work for the family until his death in 1911. It is unclear whether or not Gideon Wells would have given permission for Green to be buried in their family lot at Cedar Hill. But in Green's will, one of his requests was to. Thomas, Wells' son, obliged. Green would then become the first documented black person to be buried at Cedar Hill Cemetery since its founding in 1864, a whole 47 years after the fact. I am left with so many questions after conducting my research and interviewing Beverly Lucas this semester. I entered into this project hoping to develop a canon of narratives on black people buried at Cedar Hill Cemetery pre-20th century. I chose Cedar Hill based off of the fact that they had no discriminatory rules or regulations regarding who couldn't or could be buried in the cemetery from its founding on. In spite of my hopes, I was mistaken about the accessibility black Hartfordians had to Cedar Hill Cemetery even if they were free citizens. The gradual emancipation that took place in Connecticut was restrictive to the older generations. Despite full emancipation in 1848, slaves aged 65 and above were not freed. Although this falls on the eve of Cedar Hill Cemetery's founding, allowing time for free black development, there were extremely limiting structures in place to hinder the upward movement of black people, like the right to citizenship, which afforded the ability to own property and the right to vote. Even after the 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870, black men didn't have the right to vote because of social, cultural, and political restrictions that disenfranchised them. With the general unfavorable white attitude towards black individuals becoming more participatory in society, owning property was hard to come by. In the very few cases, like William Lanson of New Haven, a successful black business owner and property owner, black men were not able to buy a plan once they were freed. Connecticut worked hard to disenfranchise the black man, granting the white man, no matter if he owned property, the right to vote. The constraints inherently put on black people kept them from owning land while menial jobs were limited in urban centers as the influx of white migrants joined the landscape. Without proper access to livable wages, black individuals could not economically advance in society as their white counterparts were doing. When it came time to bury their loved ones, Cedar Hill Cemetery was out of their reach financially. Plots were sold in pairs, and the first single graves were not available until 1864. The prices, although reasonable for the directors, were not attainable for the average free black man. The cost of tombstones was also outrageous, particularly because of the Victorian social attitudes where monuments were intricately engraved and sometimes made out of fine marble. 
Elizabeth Colt is noted to have memorialized her husband, Samuel, through a flashy pink granite monument quite visible to anyone strolling around the cemetery. The added cost of purchasing a cemetery plot and outfitting it with a gravestone solidified the economic barrier to black people from being buried in Cedar Hill Cemetery prior to the 20th century. When Henry Green was buried at CHC, it was a matter of approval of his employer, not because Green wanted to. Another issue of access was the geographical factor. CHC was purposely developed outside the city center in an undisturbed setting which made it harder for those who did not live nearby or have access to affordable transportation to reach. The multitude of blockades those who did not have wealth or privilege faced made CHC before the 20th century an institution for the wealthy white residents of Hartford. My lack of findings when it comes to black burials within the cemetery during a time of overcrowding in other urban cemeteries makes me wonder if I was asking the right question at the right historical site of production. During my interview with Beverly Lucas, we discussed what we termed the middle period. The middle period for us is a question of where black individuals were being buried after the last burial in the ancient burying ground in 1815 and the first black burial at CHC in 1911. I realized that my work on developing an intimate understanding of black life in Hartford was really reliant on unearthing a person's life, and that was not achievable at Cedar Hill Cemetery during my time period. With compounding historical variables, black Hartfordians, no matter if they were free or not, had forces working against them at every turn when trying to advance their standings in society. The complex legislation that continued the institution of slavery in Connecticut actively denied black people a breakthrough to achieve these basic rights. The affordance to purchase land was essential in making your way in the United States, and black people were rejected that. Menial labor, which did not render livable wages, impaired the means of black people affording the chance financially to rise within a country built off of capitalism. My research unearthed even more questions and historical gaps that need to be tackled in order to develop a comprehensive and truthful narrative on the structures and conditions black people were faced with in Hartford, Connecticut prior to the 19th century. If anything, this project and interview was just a starting point in understanding what questions I should be asking, and the reality that as a researcher, I must expect to continually pivot my methods, approaches, and interpretations of my research. Black people prior to 1911 were not buried at Cedar Hill Cemetery for two reasons. The first, and most concrete, based on my research and interview, was it was not financially accessible as an institution or as a place to anyone outside of the white, wealthy, prominent members of society at the time. Secondly, there are certain moments we can point to in Cedar Hill Cemetery's history in which the motivations behind decisions to allow or not allow burials of black people like Henry Green or Lindley L. Stevens are not fully clear. This leaves my research and intrigue at a crossroad, as I would like to dive deeper into unearthing a better understanding. Well, that is all for now. I'd like to thank you for listening along, and hopefully you'll hear more from me in the coming semesters.